Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. So when I was growing up, I went to a Christian school in uh, for elementary school uh, in rural Ohio. And I remember one year that we went to the Creation Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was we went for this lecture on evolution versus creation. And I don't remember, honestly, hardly anything except for one thing about that talk. And that's this. I remember that the guy on stage told all of us elementary kids that whenever we heard something that we weren't comfortable with uh, regarding evolution or science or whatnot, uh, that we were to simply just say this one phrase, were you there? So somebody comes up to you and they say, dinosaurs are real. Were you there? Or, <laughs> you know, this animal evolved from that animal. And our response was to be, were you there? And I remember this whole uh, auditorium filled with elementary school kids who were shouting out, were you there? Uh, unfortunately, that was probably not the best way to teach us to deal with questioning things and, and asking good questions around some of these subjects related to the Bible. And we as Christians have at times had a problem with people questioning our beliefs, questioning God, questioning uh, what the Bible says. For instance, uh, an oft-used phrase during uh, my childhood that I remember was, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And while that comes from a really good place of, of deeply admitting that like what God says, what the Bible says is what I'm going to lay my life upon. That's what I'm going to live by. Uh, that, that's what I choose to believe and value. That's a really good thing. But unfortunately, it was used more often as kind of a conversation ender than it was a statement of value and deep belief. And, and so I remember as a teenager asking questions and the person said to me, well, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I just looked at him and I was like, but that doesn't answer the question that I have. What about this? And they looked at me and, and you could just tell that they, they, this conversation was going nowhere. Their eyes just got really strange and they looked at me like I was just struggling so hard and their voice got a little bit louder and they said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. Uh, we kind of chose to part ways at, at that point. Unfortunately, instead of engaging and asking questions and valuing questions and valuing the people who are asking the questions, at times we've gotten scared. And so we've shut down the conversation with things like what I just mentioned. And so this morning, I want to play a little game. Uh, I want us to dig into asking questions uh, throughout this month. I want this to be a safe space for it. And the game, though, that I want to play right now is called God Said It or... God didn't say that. So God said it. God didn't say that. And I'm going to throw out a few things that, that Christians uh, say uh, or that people say about Christians. Uh, maybe even some of them are from the Bible. And I want us just to simply think through, like, did God actually say that? Uh, and, I, and I'll give a response to it. So feel free in your homes to yell this out with me uh, if you would like. So God said it. God didn't say it. God helps those who help themselves. 
God did not say that. That's Benjamin Franklin. Uh, God works in mysterious ways. Which way does it go? Again, God did not say that. That's William Cowper, a, a poet from, I think, the 1800s. Okay, let's go with a different one. Let's get a little bit harder. You probably guessed those. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yes, that is from the Bible. God did say that. Uh, But what's interesting is that it's said in the context of Paul being in prison and having everything taken from him, including his health, and he's sitting there barely making it. And he says, in this instance, I can do all things who gives me strength. Not necessarily the same as the guy going up to bat and after he hits a home run, he he quotes Philippians 4.13. But anyway, next one. Spare the rod, spoil the child. A little controversial. Eh, More on the side of God did not say that. Uh, But this is what the proverb actually says. Proverbs 12 or 13.24. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. So it's saying that discipline is good when it's done well, uh, but it's not about like spanking a kid so that they don't turn out spoiled. It's about loving them enough to correct inappropriate behavior. That seems a little bit different to me. Next one. God will not give you more than you can handle. Which way does that go? Uh, it's kind of in the middle. It's a little bit of both. Uh, so 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So God's faithful to always help us when we are in positions that feel like it's more than we can handle. Uh, It's not that he's necessarily giving it to us, but he is always faithful to walk us through it. Okay, this too shall pass. God did not say that. That was Gandalf, Lord of the Rings. Just threw that in there to make sure that you were still paying attention. Uh, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good to give you a future and a hope. Yes, God did say that. Uh, That is in Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, And it's given to a group of exiles, though, who were in a foreign land, who had been taken from their homes, and who were questioning whether or not God still even like knew that they were around, whether or not he cared about them at all, if he had forgotten them. Again, not quite the same way that we use it in our time. So I'm not playing this game or or giving those examples to make fun. I'm truly not. But I'm simply trying to make a point here that it is so, so easy to misquote the Bible, to take things out of context, uh, and to uh, just refuse to engage in dialogue uh, out of fear uh, and just because we've gotten used to saying certain things and believing certain ways. Sarah and I had a professor at seminary whose favorite line was was this. She would say, context is king. And what she meant was this, that when you're reading the Bible and you come across something that sounds weird or off, what is the first thing you need to do? Well, you need to open it up and you need to read the whole section that it's in. You need to figure out what everything about that area is talking about. Uh, Don't just rip out one verse and start trying to interpret it. Put it back in to the chapters, the book, uh, the context that it is within and interpret it from there. Or what if you're having a conversation with a friend? 
and they start quoting uh, a Bible verse and you're like, that sounds weird. Like, I don't think that that's correct. What should you do? Look it up and have a dialogue about what it actually is within the context that it was written because context matters. You know, a month ago, I was preaching from Ecclesiastes. And, and so let me, let me give you a, a clip of what I said. We're discontent, dissatisfied, grumpy, we complain all the time, and at the end of the day, we end up with no joy and a mild case of depression. We've created a meaningless life. Now, you could very easily create an entire article about me based off of this one uh, soundbite. Let me, let me do it for you, though. Let me, let me tell you. So Stephen Watson, pastor at the Vineyard Church in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, is everything that's wrong with pastors today. He's negative and constantly berates his congregation, telling them how worthless that they are, how meaningless their lives are. If you were to go to the Vineyard Church and hear him speak, odds are you would walk out feeling worse about yourself and wondering what the good news is that they say that they talk about so often. You can easily take me out of context and create this entire picture of who I am that I hope does not fit actually the reality of who I am and what I say. But it would be very simple to do, right? So here's that soundbite within the context of what I was actually saying. You see, the teacher, who's the author of Ecclesiastes, had a contentment problem. He never had enough. And honestly, I think we are guilty of this. Often it seems like we're discontent, dissatisfied, grumpy. We complain a lot. And at the end of the day, we end up with no joy and a mild case of depression. We've created a meaningless life. But what's the difference between the good life God gave me and the meaningless one that I created? Contentment. Context matters. Hopefully that sounds completely different when I place it within the framework of the whole section that it was within. And context matters when it comes to reading the Bible. Don't take God out of context. Read the whole section. See what the entire story, the entire book, the, the entire teaching uh, is actually showing us. Don't, don't just take one sentence out and create a theology, uh, a theological treatise based upon that one sentence. Look at who the passage is about, who it's written to. What's the larger narrative that it's a part of? Check and see if God actually said it or if, if it's something else. Because, and this is something that I really hope sinks in today. There is a huge difference between the Bible describing something and God actually endorsing it. There is a huge difference between the Bible describing something and God actually endorsing it. Let me follow this up with another thought that I think is equally important when we talk about how we read the Bible well. And that's this, that we need to know who God is and what his character is. So let me ask the question, what is God like? I could go down a lot of paths with this, but I want to I want to stick uh, central right here, and I want to talk about Jesus because I think that's the most important uh, reflector that we're going to get when it comes to knowing God's character. Brian Zond is a pastor and an author, and he wrote that all religions more or less worship some version of a powerful, glorious, triumphant God, but Christians are unique in worshiping a betrayed, tortured, crucified God. This is the original scandal of the Christian faith. 
the worship of a God who is nailed to a tree. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.23, that we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Friends, you see, the cross wasn't for God. It was for me. God did not sin. I did. God doesn't need the cross. I do. It's God's way of providing a way to relationship with him forever. That's who God is. But many people think of God as being this harsh, violent, uh, demanding with all of his rules and regulations and ways of living person. You know, he's vengeful. And, and they get that from reading parts of the Bible and taking it out of context. And honestly, it's super easy to do in the Old Testament. There's lots of spots that you could pick and choose and create this picture. And in fact, many Christians worry that God is actually like this. They worry that he does actually have a monstrous side, a side that Jesus covered up or appeased by dying on the cross. A fear that God is someone from whom we need protected, from whom we need saved, when in fact the reality is the complete opposite. That God is not someone that we need saved from. He is the one who has come and saved us. Listen to 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. What is God like? God is Jesus. Jesus is God. And God is love. Two important things that I want us to keep in mind as we uh, walk away from today, when, when we finish, and that's this. What's the context and what is God like? We're in this series called Hard Questions and Good Answers, and we're spending September talking about difficult to understand parts of the Bible that have brought up lots of questions for people throughout time. And today I want to talk about things that get attributed to God but that aren't actually things that God said. Because there's a difference between the Bible describing something and God actually endorsing it. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Judges uh, chapter 11. So pray with me. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to fill the spaces that we're in. I thank you that you love us so much. I thank you that you are love, that that is your character, that that is your, uh, your being is, is love. And I thank you that we can rest in that, that we can have confidence in that. I pray this morning that you will give us uh, just grace to be able to ask the hard questions of you, not just of ourselves and uh, not just of, of other people, but really of you to dig in with you and to say, God, is that who you actually are when it comes to these parts of the Bible that just make us really, really struggle? I pray for grace with that. And I pray that you will reveal yourself to us this day in Jesus name. Amen. Well, let's open up to Judges eleven twenty nine through 40. Uh, it's the story of Jephthah and his daughter. Jephthah is a judge in Israel. This is after the Israelites have just moved into the land of Canaan, after they left Egypt and, and Moses, and then Joshua led them. And then after Joshua died, they were led by a series of judges, of whom one is Jephthah. So listen to this, verse 29 of Judges 11. 
At that time, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went through the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah, and from there he led an army against the Ammonites. So, real quick, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That is mentioned because that is the, the phrase that is used to let us know that this person was actually called by God, that they were anointed by God, that God placed them as the leader over this group of people. It's used over and over in the Old Testament, especially with people like David and Solomon uh, and Samuel and others. It says that they were anointed by God, that the Spirit of God came upon them. It's just saying that they actually are God's leader. So Jephthah has been placed in this position by God. Let's continue. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me a victory over the Ammonites, I will return. I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns. And in this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. When he returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish, and he said, Oh, my daughter. You have completely destroyed me. You have brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months, because I will die a virgin." You may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. She went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made, and she died a virgin. So it's become a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. So let me walk us through this really quick, just one more time. So Jephthah is called as the leader of of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. And then Jephthah offers a sacrifice in exchange for a victory. And then God gives them a victory. And then he returns home and his daughter is the first one out of his door. And so Jephthah then goes and sacrifices his daughter, which means that God wanted his daughter. Right? Is that what it's telling us? Did God tell him to sacrifice his daughter? This is tricky, right? But I think first we need to ask this. Did Jephthah actually intend to offer a human sacrifice? So what's interesting as I was studying this is, is this, uh, the way that Augustine, who was an early church father, the four and five hundreds, who lived in uh, northern Africa in modern day Algeria, he, he said this about this story. Listen to this. He said, And some of this is from the the person who translated his writings. So what precisely did Jephthah intend to vow? Whatever he had in mind, Augustine observes with with a trace of wit, it surely was not a sheep, for it is not custom now, nor was it then for sheep to run out to greet a returning master. 
Instead, this sort of behavior—this is the sort of behavior one expects from a dog. But that would have been a sacrifice, illicit, contemptible, and unclean. You do not sacrifice dogs to God. That was not part of the deal. None of this is new. But Augustine also adds in his more his own more sinister analysis that the text of Jephthah's vow in verse thirty-one in Latin reads, "Not whatever comes forth to greet me, but whoever." Augustine's conclusion is chilling that Jephthah never intended anything but a human sacrifice all along. Who? Surely, if not his only beloved daughter, then he must have planned to sacrifice his wife. Now, this is hypothesizing at this point. But I think it's an important hypothesis to carry out because that is where we go when we think about this story. And at this point, it would be very easy to make him out to be a bad guy. But Hebrews chapter 11 tells us to hold on and to not go that far. This is what it says, verse 32 of Hebrews 11. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the flames of fire, and they escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength, and they became strong in battle, put whole armies to flight. So this man is included in a list of good leaders by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. But honestly, it's important that we recognize this. Many of those people had massive character issues. Samson, David, like these are not perfect individuals. So Jephthah is on a list of leaders that are flawed and... He is a leader called by God who offered God a sacrifice in exchange for a victory and then followed it up by sacrificing his daughter. Whether or not he actually intended to sacrifice his daughter doesn't matter because he did do it. And part of the thing here is that Jephthah had a problem. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to lead instead of letting God lead. He tried to make a deal with God in this section. He said, God, if you give me what I want so that I look good, so that I'm the big bad uh, boss man in Israel, so that everybody looks at me and is like, man, look at what he did. So they create songs about me and tell stories about me. If you give me what I want, then I will give you something in return. And this never ends well because God does not care about our pride. God does not care about us being built up in front of other people. He's not interested in that at all. He doesn't want to make a deal to do that. That's not how God works. The text tells us that Jephthah was dictating things to God. What the text does not tell us is if God wanted a sacrifice in exchange for the victory. And friends, that is a massive omission. And it's really good news. It's not an error or a bit of forgetfulness on the side of the author. Instead, what it is, is it's confirmation that God did not actually want this. And it's important to recognize this because so often we read stories like this and we just plow through them. We're like, this is terrible. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to process this. This is so much. And we don't stop to ask the important question, wait, did God actually want that? 
So there's two things that I think that it's important that we learn from this story. One is that it's not uncommon for leaders, even godly, filled with the Spirit, called by Jesus' leaders to be flawed, to do things that are not godly. It's sad. I wish it was not true, but it's the reality because leaders are humans as well. I'm a human. You're a human. It's our reality. We are being made more into the likeness of Jesus. But here in real time, we have bent towards sin and selfishness and pride and lust and so on. There's things that break us down that we struggle with that we need Jesus to come and bring freedom uh, for us. And leaders don't always choose to follow the ways of the Holy Spirit. We struggle. We're in the process of being made perfect, a process which doesn't end in the now. It ends only in the then when Jesus returns. Friends, don't expect leaders, even really good, spirit-filled ones, to be infallible. Let God be God. Let leaders be human, which in many times, if they're filled with the Holy Spirit, is a really good thing. It means that they are going to lead in really good ways, but at times it will mean some not-so-good things. Here's the second thing. We should not attribute to God what God does not attribute to himself. If God had asked Jephthah for a sacrifice, uh, to sacrifice the first person who comes out of his house, I believe that God would have asked for it. He wouldn't have left it to question. Uh, and when Abraham asks, you know, for instance, when, when, when he asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis, God is very, very clear about it. He asks Abraham clearly. We read the whole dialogue. They have a conversation where they go back and forth about it. Uh, and equally important, when Isaac is taken up to that spot to be sacrificed, God provides something to be sacrificed in his place. He is not actually killed in that moment. God wanted Abraham's willingness, not his actual sacrifice. And it was a pointer to Jesus coming and willfully giving up of himself for us. So when God asks for something, he clearly says that he doesn't just stay quiet and let us try and figure it out on our own. If the Bible doesn't say that God did something or asked for something, be very careful about attributing that thing to God. Why? Because there is a difference between the Bible describing something and God actually endorsing something. We've read a hard story, one that could cause many people to really question their faith and what they believe about God. How can we worship a God who uh, asks for a person, for a child to be sacrificed? And the good news is, is that we don't have to ask that question because it didn't actually happen. Context made that clear. And more importantly, what we know about God has made that clear. It's not who God is. So let's end by talking once more about what God's like. First John, or John 1, 14, 17 through 18 says, So the Word became human. That means Jesus came. And He made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. That's who God is. Love and, unf- un- and uh, unfailing love and faithfulness. 
And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father, his one and only Son. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is God himself, Jesus who is God himself, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. Friends, this is a good news. This is who God is. He is Jesus. Jesus is God revealed. When we know Jesus, we know what God would say and what he asks us to do. There aren't questions necessary. It's very obvious because we know his character. We know the way that he works and we know what he said, what he asks for. This is Jesus. He is God and God is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. C.S. Lewis wrote this, this book called The Problem of Pain in the 1950s. And listen to what he says. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. So real quick, if it's not about us, then the conversation changes. That's what Lewis is saying. He's saying, if love is more than just trivial, if love is not just about us, if we are not the center of the universe, then the conversation changes around this. Let's see what he has to say next. We were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. Friends, we are not the center. God is, and God is love. He's not a weak, flaky sort of middle school crush love, but a deep love that involves sacrifice. God created humanity so that we could be vessels that are filled with his love. That's who God is. That's what God is like. Don't guess at who God is and what he's like. Have confidence in his reality and what he's told us and what he's like throughout the entire story, not just in certain parts that are questionable to us. And he has shown us his character through Jesus, the one who came to be revealed as God so that we could have a clear image of who God is. As we end, I just want to pray for us to encounter Jesus. Because there, if there is one thing that will bring clarity to the questions, one thing that will bring clarity to the frustrations, to uh, the, the, the worries that we have that are sometimes brought up by these stories, it's knowing who Jesus is and being changed by that. So will you pray with me as we end this morning? Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come and to fill my friends right now. Meet them where they're at. Meet them in their homes, in their offices, in their cars, wherever they're at. Fill them with your presence. Jesus, I pray that we will engage with you this day. That we will walk away from here knowing who you are. And knowing how much you love us and the good things that you have for us. Jesus, I thank you that you're the clearest reflection that we can see of who God is that we don't have to be afraid of God, but that we can find real love and joy and hope and peace found in you because you've revealed to us who you are. Give us clarity, Lord God, to know you more. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.